This episode is brought to you by the National Jewish Retreat. Join the 14th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Washington, D.C. from August 13 to 18, 2019. Check it out at jretreat.com and enter the code JLP at checkout to receive $50 off. And yes, I will be there. Head over to jretreat.com and enter JLP at checkout. Jewish Latin Princess, Episode 102, Libby Kistner, Author and Writing Coach. You're listening to Jewish Latin Princess Podcast by Yael. Every week, get your dose of inspiration from the world's most uniquely talented Jewish women and from Yael herself. Seeking profound and practical ways to live a joyful, richer Jewish life? Welcome to Jewish Latin Princess Podcast. And now, Jewish lifestyle expert and bilingual blogger at JewishLatinPrincess.com, your host, Yael. You're listening to Jewish Latin Princess. I'm Yael Trush, your host. Today, I have the author of a new book for teen girls, Dear Libby, Will You Answer My Questions About Friendship? Libby Kistner. Frankly, the book is not just for girls. I've read it myself, as has my daughter, my oldest daughter, and I really enjoyed it. Libby has written other books, and she's also a writing coach with a unique approach to creativity and the craft of writing. Much to learn here on how to really create from a place of calm. Admittedly, I seem to have a lot of work to do in this area, but... This is something that Libby practices herself and teaches her clients to do. Where did the idea for this book come from? Why a universal message rather than a more overt Jewish book uh, this time around? We dive into her coaching and we explore her mindset when it came to choosing a career in writing. In particular, how money was never a part of the thought process. Where did that come from? Libby experienced her father going bankrupt when she was a teenager and then building tremendous wealth. We unpack all that. What's next for Libby Kistner? Is she drinking her own medicine? And speaking about medicine, I apologize for my congested voice throughout this interview. If you follow me on Instagram stories, you may know that I've been sick for a while with a sinus situation that just really knocked me down. But at some point, I had to get back to work. And I've done a lot of interviews while drinking tea, let's just say. Hopefully, by the time this airs, I'll be completely healthy. Here we go, ladies. Here's Libby Kistner. Libby Kistner, welcome to Jewish Latin Princess. Hi, it's wonderful to be here. It's so nice. You're all the way in Eretz Israel, correct? Yes, and the weather is amazing. I think the weather is always amazing here. It is. <laughs> we actually had storms last night. We were all terrified that it was going to flood again, but uh, Baruch Hashem, no flooding, although it, it did start to flood, but it, it, it we woke up to a, to clear, clear, well, not really clear skies, but no rain. So Libby, you just came out with a new book. Congratulations. Dear Libby, will you answer my question? about friendship. Congratulations on the book. Thank you. Yes. And I know you've written other books. This one uh, in particular, your new work is based on a column that you wrote for many years for Mishpacha magazine. I don't know if my readers are familiar. It's a Jewish uh, magazine. Uh, it's been an established Jewish magazine. I mean, I, can't, I don't even know how old it is, but it's an established Jewish magazine. And, and even though this book was based on this column, I remember you telling me in private that the way you came about this book and the way you gave birth to it in some ways felt different than your other, your previous work. There was something going on for you as a writer when you were giving birth to this book. So I want to start with this, with the with this new work. First of all, tell us what was the impetus for writing this book and then maybe walk us through that process. Why was this different for you as an author? Right. So the impetus for writing this book is I, I like a challenge. I really love to challenge myself. And I wondered about how it would be. I had written two books, Extraordinary Stories About Ordinary People. And I wrote a book um, with a compilation of questions and answers. This column is something that I wrote for 15 years. So when I went to introduce my first book to Artscroll, they suggested that I compile some questions and answers. And... Uh, after, and so those two books were published by Art Scroll, mm-hmm. and I always wondered what it would be like to publish with a big publisher and what it takes to get an, a literary agent. And it it wasn't like 
have to get a literary agent and I have to get published. It wasn't that kind of thing. It was like just following my curiosity and learning about it and exploring it. And then one day I got a literary agent and it was like, wow, you know, this is really happening. And suddenly I, I was so frozen. I was really paralyzed. I had a contract. My deadline was nine months. But because this was such a process of curiosity and flow, I suddenly realized that what I had written 10 years ago or 15 years ago wasn't what I would write now, uh-huh. right? So when you when you got this literary agent, your book proposal was based on the column. It was based on the column. It was based on content I had written, but it was this casual process. So suddenly, 10 years have passed. And now I have a literary agent and a contract, but my my content needed to be upgraded to where I was then. Mm-hmm. So um, what was different in writing this book was that whereas in the past I wrote just with my mind, mm-hmm. and I love words and I love language and I love the design of language and. there's a certain kind of pleasure and passion and fun and weaving words together. Right. But I felt like I was just writing from my mind. And I was looking for a way to write from every part of myself. Mm -hmm. I wanted to bring all of myself into the writing process so that I can sense the rhythm. I can feel the words so that I can communicate in that kind of way that resonates from heart to heart. Do you know what I mean? So does that mean that when you went back and started reading your answers that you had written 10 years ago over the course of many, many years of over a decade, you didn't feel that you were connecting with those answers? It wasn't that I wasn't connecting with the answers. I felt like it was like um, anything that any psychologist could say, anything that any advice column columnist would say I wanted to find my own voice Uh what would I say Uh I wanted to access you know we all have some kind of inner knowing and authentic voice inside and I wanted to access that I didn't want to just sort of repeat what everybody was saying because I had learned a lot over the process of uh, when I got these questions I would do research I didn't know the answers off the top of my head I would go and learn and find out and so for this book, I wanted to see what what would Libby write. So you're you're in this at this stage where you have a deadline. You you have nine months to produce this work. You're looking at your old work and you're thinking there is more that I could be saying. There's another voice to Libby that I need to put forth. Um, uh, so how how does that happen? How did the leap happen? <laughs> okay, so for the first three months, I was frozen literally paralyzed I couldn't write one word not a single word and I was looking for a you're making me of... nervous already I'm like I'm, <laughs> I, I'm feeling your pain <laughs> I was just waiting bearing the pain like you're saying bearing the discomfort and waiting for a sense of flow a sense of vitality a sense of passion I wanted to feel a curiosity and follow my curiosity I didn't want to write out of feeling pressured I wanted to write from this real place and so I I, yes it took me three months to get to that place of stillness and um, all through the process of writing the book, whenever I felt I had pressure, mm-hmm. I would I would really see this in my writing. I would just be going around, going around in circles, editing and re-editing and writing and rewriting. I'm sure you're familiar with this. We're all familiar with this, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that comes out of fear. There's some kind of fear that drives us, as opposed to when we're writing from a state of calmness and peace and feeling of contentedness, then there is something else. There is so hard to put into words. Right. So something that gets experienced on a very sensory level, mm-hmm. where you feel like there is another way of looking at reality. It has a bigger perspective, a broader perspective. It has a harmony. It has more balance. That's what I was looking for when I wrote this book. So you took the next six months and you felt like you achieved it? So, um, you know, it's a very funny question when you say you felt like you achieved it because there's always more to how much we can achieve. Mm -hmm. But for that process and for that time, it was, I was just putting forth the best that I could. If I would do the book now, I could do it 
differently, right? Mm-hmm. We're always on a process of self-development with whatever we're creating. Right, right, right. I want to backtrack a little bit because you mentioned that you were curious about what it would be like to to publish with a bigger publisher. Um, you had a curiosity of what it would be like to work with a literary agent. And then you said, and you got the literary agent, but, but connect the dot for me a little bit. I mean, we don't just leave it at curiosity. You must have done something that made that happen. The literary <laughs> agent just didn't land knocking on your door. That's right. So I'll tell you, first I started out very naively. I had no idea how this works. So I just researched some agents, um, what they do, what they look like, what they're asking for. Some of them have um, calls for submission. So I read all that information and I, I, I felt like who would who resonates with me? Who would connect to my message? Mm-hmm. And I wrote to them very simply, very um, directly. I have this column and, you know, would you be interested in in um, how did they call it? What's that word? Like representing me. Right, <laughs> right. Um, so and then some of them just flat out ignored me. But some of them gave me some direction. Like someone mentioned a book that I can buy, buy to read up more about it, how to write a book proposal. There's mm-hmm. a book like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and over the years, I collected that information and started to write a real professional proposal and started to tweak it and make it better and learn how to sell myself and how to sell the content of my book. Mm-hmm. And then once I had a proposal and I was happy with the proposal, I reached out to 80 agents in one go so that, you know, I wasn't just sending one proposal waiting for an answer. And also when you send out the 80, 80 agents and when somebody says no, or I'll take a pass on it. You don't get that sinking feeling of rejection because you know you have 79 other options. Right. Right, 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 right. What, Libby, why why a book on friendship specifically? Of all the content over those 15 years writing the column, I'm sure the girls asked questions on all sorts of things, but you specifically chose the topic of friendship. Yes. So, first of all, through the years and the hundreds and hundreds of questions that came in, I found that the topic of friendship is something that came up again and again. It seems like there is this, you know, this this is really relationship and connection is a big topic and it's yeah. uppermost in everybody's minds, not only teenagers, everybody's mind. So that's why I decided to take that topic. What was it like? You're, you're a mother. Um, what was it like to be for your kids to be the the child of the expert on <laughs> on relationships and friendship <laughs> the girls in particular <laughs> um so you know every child is different so some ch- one one of my daughters said mommy why don't you write a book about stories who cares about questions and answers or about friendship um and other children related to the questions and answers. And other children said, would say, ah, oh, dear Libby, I have a question. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> so I am very curious because I've read the book and I, I see in the book there's so much that I can trace to Jewish thought to Jewish values, but your book does not have any references, any overt Jewish references, um, despite you being an observant Jewish woman with a very solid Torah background. Why did you choose to do it this way? So to me, the true source of wisdom is Torah. Jewish thought is an accumulation of wisdom that gets passed from generation to generation. Knowledge about what creates harmony and dissonance, what connects and what disconnects, what creates balance and imbalance. These are things that are passed on from parents to children, from teachers to students. And every generation adds more wisdom. To me, this is Jewish thought, to seek wisdom so that you know you can live your life with empathy compassion. You can live your life with kindness towards yourself and others. And so that you become a vessel of joy and you care and you're, you have a wise heart and understanding heart to those around you. That's what the book is. Listen. Right, 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 right. Your other two books with Arts Girl, I'm assuming were more Jewish in their um, theme. Well, I, I think this book is Jewish. I mean, it's a very Jewish book. It's right. based on the Vahaftalarech Kamocha, right? That's the, um, you know, what did Hillel say? It's Zekhal Gadol. It's the biggest principle of the Torah. Correct, 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 correct. 
Um, no, but it's 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 actually it's beautiful to see how you've been able to put a piece of work that definitely is based on Jewish wisdom, but it, it can it, it doesn't have to be a it doesn't have to be a Jewish reader because everything that you're saying there anybody with any background can understand it and grasp it that that's part of uh, what you've achieved with this book yes it is for everyone it's uh love is a universal message right that's what friendship is right did it ever come across when you were looking with for publishers did it did the discussion of how much of, of the book was going to have um overt jewish content um did that ever come up no nope, never interesting. actually interesting to think about it but it never came up very interesting that they never asked was the column also quote-unquote neutral in its content the or 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 more let's just say more overt I think that when I started out, there was a lot more like um, Sukkim from the Torah and a lot of reference to, you know, what you probably call Jewish thought. Right. Um, but as, as the years went on, um, I think my message became more universal. Um, I think you would call that practical living. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm curious, you're also a writing coach, which is something very interesting. I only recently learned about this from another friend of mine in Israel who does the same thing. So was the process of becoming a writing coach in any way tied to this process that you that you described before when you were telling us how this book came about? The, the, does this career a path also go hand in hand with the giving birth to this book? So I've been a writing coach for many years. Okay. I've done writing workshops and I've been a writing mentor and a language designer where I help people design their language. Um, in the book, there is a chapter called Express Yourself. Yeah. Right. A lot of a lot of the questions that came in through the years were girls who felt like they were um, invisible and that they had a lot of talents and something to offer the world. Um, and they asked about that. And I think that's an important topic, and I feel passionate about that, because we all have the power to make a difference. And we all need to find our own style and our own voice. There is something about authenticity that has resonance that never fails to stir anyone. Right. right? We can feel when it's coming from the heart. Yes. And, and, and a message that is personal is universal. Like I think that goes back to this topic that we're discussing, right? That this book is so universal. Mm-hmm. And that's what these questions are. That, you know, a question that came in, I don't know if I was always able to help them with my answers. Um, in the book, I, I talk about how this book is not a, que- a book about answers. It's a book about questions. Questions are beautiful. Questions take you on a journey. You know, right. through the question, you get to this to explore different options and you get to experience new things and new adventures. And there is no one answer. There's no such a thing as the answer. Uh, imagining that somewhere somehow lies the answer to a problem is an illusion that we may hold on to. Huh, because we want to give ourselves, yeah, because we want to give ourselves a sense of security and certainty that somewhere there is an answer. But the truth is that some answers are appropriate at some times and some are appropriate for other times. Every situation is different, right? And every person is different. The same person in a different situation or the same situation with a different person needs a different answer. So how can we give the answer? Which brings me to my next question that about the chal- the the challenging I mean the the responsibility and the challenge of the task at hand meaning over all those years it's such a Mind you that it's the age group itself is a difficult age group. You're 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 responding to preteens and teens, um, and like you said, you said before, I, I don't even know if my answer is going to help them. Right? Um, it's 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 a it's a, it's a it's a great responsibility to give advice to to anybody, but also to that age group um, in particular. Um, were you at, did do you recall challenging situations or or, or questions that, you know or any situation regarding this work where you really felt like the way of that responsibility? Yeah, especially in the beginning, um, where I felt like, um, how should I know? You know what I mean? Like, I get these questions, and I didn't feel like I know all the answers. And I would get hundreds and hundreds of questions, and having this pile of questions, and knowing that these children somewhere out there are waiting for a response. At first, it put a lot of pressure on me, 
Uh-huh. But, but with time, I realized that um, A, the question itself is very cathartic for a child to feel that they can write a question to someone anonymously and somebody is going to listen to their question mm-hmm. and understand them and feel alone with them. That alone was something that I was offering. And B, um, knowing that I don't have to have the answers, that my answer is just one understanding in a moment of time, and it's not the answer, that helped me alleviate some of that burden that I felt in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And I can only imagine that the process of motherhood over the years also helped you mature um, as a, a writer of Dear Libby, right? Um, because just a lot of things maybe came from experience, uh, experiences that you were having as you were raising your children. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, our lives are like, unfolding sagas right everybody's life is and if we look for connection and appreciate that our life is orchestrated from above then you realize that you're here for a purpose and you just do the best you can so i want to connect the, the dots in the career path a little bit how, how first of all how did you end up becoming dear libby huh, that's a very good question that many people ask and it was really mm, just getting a phone call from the editor of Mishpacha Jr. asking me if I would be willing to do this. Why? You were writing for them anyway? I was writing, no, I, this this was when Mishpacha was just coming out. Uh-huh. So they were coming out with this English version. Hebrew Mishpacha was out for a while. I don't even know how long, but they were coming out with an English version uh-huh. of this magazine. And so I got a phone call from the editor asking me if I would be willing to do an advice column. And I said, yes. Huh. I didn't know what I was getting myself into. Uh-huh. Um, remember when I told you about being blank for the first three months, being frozen yeah. when I wrote this book? Yes. I had the same kind of struggle when I st- first started out with this co- column. And back then, you were still in Borough Park. You were still living in New York or were you in Israel? No, I was in Israel. Uh-huh. You, were a ma- you were a married woman already? Yes, and I had just given birth to my fifth child. Uh-huh. So my daughter was 15. That's how I kind of <laughs> kept track of how old Mishpacha is. Um, and I, I just remember that um, feeling of blankness when I got these questions. And I didn't know how to answer them. And I struggled with that, not knowing. And I think that we all go through this stage in anything that we do of not knowing. And and I think we have to ease into it and accept that that's part of the process of creativity. Before we know anything, we don't know, right? Right, right. So how do we ease into it? Do we breathe? Do we go for a walk? (laughs) Do we take a nap? (laughs) I think that, uh, you know, in psychology, they know this term as fight, flight, and freeze. Uh And I think freeze is what happens when we're terrified. Like when we're so scared, we just freeze. We freeze up. We get blank. Then once the fear um, diminishes, we can feel fight or flight. We can feel either withdrawal. Some people have like, just want to hide. And some people have this, like, I want to conquer the world to feel safe. We all react differently. It depends on our brain structure and our backgrounds and the way we're programmed, the way our minds are wired. Uh Uh-huh. Um, so I think the first step is just to bring an observer on board and because fear is very gripping. It's very fixating. If there would be a bumblebee that would come into your room right now, you would just be staring at the bee, right? You don't, wouldn't want to get stung. So every time we have fear, or even if it's a perceived fear, something that like our mind perceives as a threat, uh-huh. we get very fixated on whatever feels threatening. And it's very gripping and we tend to fight that because it's uncomfortable and we just don't want to have that discomfort. We want to avoid pain and pursue pleasure. Mm-hmm. So automatically we try to avoid it and get rid of it. You know, we feel afraid, but then we feel upset about feeling afraid or we feel afraid about being afraid. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but I also <laughs> know that we fall into easing the pain I guess by getting ourselves distracted with a whole lot of other things so that we don't have to face the fear exactly so either we tend to run from the fear which is in actuality adding more fight and flight to the fight and flight Uh uh-huh 
getting trying to get rid of it is fighting it right so that's right. adding more fight or flight that's adding more intensity fight or flight is intense you have to run if there's a refrigerator falling down from three floors above you you get all that adrenaline and cortisol coursing through your body to get you to run and that's intense and if you add to that fight the fight or flight the flight that's double intensity Mm-hmm. So the other thing that people tr- tend to do is to escape it all. So we escape it into ice cream or uh, reading novels. But the thing is with this escape that's based on fear is that it's, it's, it has an underlying intensity. Hmm. So that's why it turns into addictive behavior or compulsive behavior. We can't seem to stop ourselves from whatever it is we're doing. Because it's not just an excitement for the excite for for the sake of excitement, it's an escape. It's an ex- an excitement that's based on an escape. Whereas if our excitement has an underlying feature of calmness, that excitement turns into blow. That's vitality. Right, right. It that's, has a different quality. Right. That's when we create. That's when we can actually create <laughs> from a place of calm. Right. So you're asking, how do we bear that? So the first step is to recognize that we don't have so much control over our automatic responses. That's human nature, right? Imagine if we would try to control nature. If it rains, we would try to control the rain. Or you can't control that. You can't control when the sun shines and when there's a thunderstorm. But we can observe it. So having that awareness is the first step. Oh, this is how I'm reacting. Exactly. Bringing an observer on board. And that's what a lot of mindfulness is about, right? Being mindful of what's happening, observing the self. That's not something that we're born to do. That's something that we have to learn how to do. And that's what we learn through practice. The more we practice it, the more we have it. And the more we have the observer, it's easier not to get caught up in the grip of fear. Hmm. Because I can just be observing it, watching it it happening without having to enact anything or react right away. We can create a punctuation in time from an automatic response. We could say, wait, this is uncomfortable. I'm observing this. Let me just breathe into this, sense myself in this moment, and let let the wave pass through you. Hmm. Were you always this intuitive and this calm? Um, you know, I think that I'm, I was always a calm person. That's why I looked for um, more calmness. I think that whatever you have in you, you look for more of that. You get attracted to that. Uh-huh. So by nature, I am a calm person, but I, I enjoy calmness and I enjoy looking for what brings calmness. I enjoy generating calmness for myself, for my family, for my friends, for the people around me. So how did you, Libby, how did you end up as a writing coach? So now we understand how you... So you get this phone call, you're going to do this Dear Libby, and you're working on it. At the beginning, it, doesn't, it didn't feel like you, 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 know, like you knew what you were doing, you, but you, you, you mastered it. At what point um, do you turn also your attention to teaching others how to write? Um, so I, I've been doing this for maybe 15 years on and off. I, I really strongly believe and I'm passionate about the idea that we all have the power to make a difference. You have the power to make a difference, to touch someone's life, to change the world. And I'm not, I'm not saying that to be cliche. I really believe that everybody has the power to do this. Everybody has been blessed with such a big gift. I think it's the most ingenious gift anyone can hope for. And that's your message. Mm-hmm. It's your life experience and your wisdom and your message could start a movement, you know, it could be a turning point for all of humanity. It can change world history. I know these sound like big words, but I really mean it. And a message is powerless if it stays inside of you, right? Mm -hmm. If you never articulate your ideas and share them with others, it will die with you. Correct. So I always wondered, how do you extract your expertise? And how do I help other people extract their expertise for others to embrace or to even to be challenged by or to contend with so that everything you've learned in your life, your life experience, your wisdom can make a difference and you can make change happen in this world. So that's how you ended up um, becoming a writing coach? Yes, because I wanted people to be able to 
express themselves hmm. and bring their brilliance out of their head and into the world for people to enjoy and to be touched by and to be inspired by. So how did people find you? Like, how did you even go about building this um, this business aside from your other writing? I think it's mostly word of mouth. Right. And also when I work with somebody, I work very hands-on and I take on a project and it becomes my own. So it's very concentrated work. I really work with a client, first of all, to help them find their voice. You know, there are different people because different people have different needs. So some people come to me and they say, um, I'm working with clients and I know this works. I see it working. And when I speak on stage, I, I can see that my message impacts people. But when I start to write, I lose my voice. Uh-huh. I, I don't know, you know, I feel like a four-year-old or I feel like I feel so vulnerable. And um, so what I do I, is I help them get in touch with their their voice and who they are and help bring more calmness into the process so that they can create from flow and from vitality. Some people already have their message. Then they're, they're very clear about their message. They don't need my help to help them find their voice. They're experts at what they do. They know what they're doing and they just have a hard time because there is so much wisdom. They have this encyclopedic knowledge and it's hard for them to funnel that into words. Words are limited, right? When you sit and speak to somebody, you can be very good at articulating yourself, but when it comes to writing it, it there's a different form. And I help them design their language in that form. And I work with them page by page, and I mentor them, and I help them articulate what's in them in a way that will speak to their audience. I put myself into both heads, the clients, my client's head and their client's head. I'm trying to make that connection between what this person in front of me knows so well and so obvious to them, but what their client wouldn't know. And I try to make that happen for them so that their words can reach their audience. Amazing, amazing. Hey, what are you doing this summer? Would you like to join me and over 70 of the world's most renowned Jewish educators and interesting men and women in Washington, D.C. for the week or weekend of a lifetime? You can join me at the 14th Annual National Jewish Retreat at the Marriott Wardham Park Hotel in Washington, D.C. from August 13 to 18, 2019. You can come for all of it. You can come for part of it. But the most important part is that you come. You will nourish body and soul in a way you've never experienced before. Check it out at jretreat.com and use the code JLP at checkout to receive a $50 discount. Come by yourself, come with your husband, come with your entire family. There's something for everybody at the National Jewish Retreat. This is the vacation that you deserve this summer. Head over to jretreat.com and receive your special $50 discount by entering the code JLP at checkout. Code expires August 1st, 2019. of the five C's, which is credibility, context, clarity, craft, and community. Uh, Credibility, just in short, is to find your voice, to find your message, to find your purpose. That's the aspect of credibility. Context is about creating meaning and relevance with your message. How is it meaningful and relevant to your audience? Clarity is to convey a coherent message. And craft is to develop the art and music with words because writing is an art and a skill. And community is to connect with others and to build a trust in your message. Libby, we talked about creating from a place of calm that's really your strength helping um, writers get to that place of calm and flow and you talked about this how for your own for yourself the process for yourself um, and you described that and I'm thinking I don't know if I'm that I create from such a place of calm (laughs) rather I feel like (laughs) maybe this is just natural to who I am but that doesn't mean that it can't be improved right but I feel like Now that I'm reflecting on your words, I'm like, oh, no. But for me, there's like an intensity. There's a fire. Like, I know something needs to be said at a certain point in time. So I sit and I create it. Um, 
or most often I'm, I'm on a due date of some sort, so I have this time pressure that I must create this content. So I think I definitely work from a place of intensity. <laughs> I mean, Welcome I'm- to the club. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the human race. I think we're all like that. And I think one of the first questions to ask ourselves is, are we creating from a place of self-protection or self-expression? Self-protection or self-expression? Hmm. It's going back to that fight or flight thing you were telling us before. Right. Is it survival or living? Why am I writing? It's like questioning the motive. And when we go back to that, we suddenly get a new perspective because am I writing because I want to be visible? Am I writing because I want to make a lot of money? Am I writing because I have to meet the the deadline or else? (laughs) Or am I writing because I have a message to express? It's self-expression, it's guidance, it's vitality, it's growth, it's contributing to the world. You see the difference? I do. Libby, did you always know as a young girl that you wanted to work as a writer? Um, Was this a passion of yours growing up? You know, it's an interesting question because for years, even though I had written these books and I had written hundreds of articles online and in print and my work was included in anthologies, both Jewish anthologies and non-Jewish, you know, anthologies, I couldn't internalize the fact that I was a writer. And I think a lot of people can understand that. It's, I think it's called imposter syndrome or something like that. Yeah. Um, I think part of it was because writing was so natural to me. It was just who I was, the way uh-huh. I breathed, the way I lived, I wrote. And um, I used to sit and write everybody's homework, you know, everybody's writing assignments in class. It was just part of what I did. So I couldn't see myself as a writer. I was just doing my thing. Um, but I do remember myself being a storyteller. <laughs> I remember I was as little as four years old. I would take all the little kids in the country, you know, we would go up north in the Catskills. I would line them up against the wall and I love to entertain them. I remember when my cousins came to my house and we lived on the fourth floor. So we had this flight of stairs going up to the roof and I would sit everyone down on those steps and I would just <laughs> enthrall them with stories. Huh. And my most rewarding moments that I still remember to this day is when their eyes popped open, their mouths dropped. I love that. I love to entertain. I love to inspire. I'm really passionate about that. So today I help people do that. Libby, do you think part of it was perhaps some subconscious thoughts of, you know, maybe writing is not the financially responsible thing to do, or, you know, people don't make a living as writers, that type of mentality? Do you think there was some of that when you were younger? You know, that's such an interesting question. You know why? Because growing up, I never had any thought about how am I going to make a living? It wasn't the question. Interesting. How am I going to make a living? It was never the question in my family. Um, living is something that you do. It has nothing to do with money. You live passionately. You do. You follow your curiosities. You live what you you do. What you love doing, and money comes. Wow. Think, you know, money comes from not necessarily from what you're doing, but we do our work because that's what we're meant to do. We're here to fulfill our unique role and we do that but money has nothing to do there, there wasn't a connection like that in my growing up for that, me is, my that is super super cool because it's rare <laughs> most people do have that connection um which is this is a perfect segue actually to my next question which is about your family because i know that um growing up you your father was a very strong example and probably part of what you just said before um in terms of um, messages that you received regarding financial life and the ups and downs of businesses. Can you share some of the lessons that you learned from your father as as a as an entrepreneur that you saw at home vividly? Yes, um, my father is a businessman. Um, also, he followed his flow and did what he loved. He's a great salesman. He's very enthusiastic about selling products that he feels. And cares deeply about because he feels he that through that he fulfills people's needs. For example, now he's um, he's he took this little company, like a little store that was floundering somewhere in the Sharon, and they came and asked for his help, mm-hmm. and he turned this little store into a million dollar company. Wow! And yes, they're selling fish to you know all the chain stores in Israel. They're exporting it out of Israel. Um, it became a really massive company, and. He has such pleasure out of 
the idea that he gives top quality fish for his customers. He revels in that. So interesting. It's not about the money, but it's about providing for people's needs, finding what their needs are and giving them the best, the top quality. It's interesting because I know for he wasn't involved in the fish business for, you know, (laughs) when you were growing up, that's not what he did. But he also built companies many times around, right? Um, In 1984, my father's company went bankrupt. Mm-hmm. And he was at the bank signing whatever papers he needed to sign, filling out forms. And the, the bank manager said to him, Isaac, you just lost everything. How come you're still smiling? And my father said, I'll tell you two reasons why I'm still smiling. Number one is my mother and my father were both in the Holocaust. They lost everything. And I still see them smiling from time to time. And what did I lose? What did they lose? They lost their mothers and fathers, their sisters and their brothers, people that are never coming back. And what did I lose? Money. Money comes and money goes. That's why I'm still smiling. That's the first reason. And the second reason why I'm still smiling, he said, is because, you know, people read stories or novels or serial stories in magazines. And when it gets to the dramatic parts or the scary parts or the suspenseful parts or the horrifying parts, they stop reading and they say, I can't read this anymore. But I continue reading because I know that the story will end well. And so I'm standing here in this moment of bankruptcy, but I know that the story will end well. He did. He turned around his company and by six years later, he was earning a turnover of $14 million a year. He was selling sweaters to companies, to um, department stores all over the United States, to Macy's and Saks Fifth Avenue and Bloomingdale's, all those department stores. Incredible. So he built up again. Libby, your father obviously had a tremendous amount of trust in God, of bitachon, which, by the way, I'd like to stress that you mentioned you always saw him reading the classic text, Gates of Trust, Chavod Levavot, which is an important visual, at least for me, that you provided us, because it really reminds us that, I just don't want to overlook this point, that this trust that you that he lived is not something automatic that some of us some of us have some of us don't it's something that requires work and diligence and 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 so you saw your father work on that and i think in and of itself that's a a very powerful lesson but i'd like to ask you about your mother um as we are women here on the show and uh what recollections do you have of the way she handled the ups and the downs, or perhaps the downs is a better way of putting it, but being that she was presumably the one trying to feed the children and tending to their daily needs, which obviously requires money, how do you recall that she managed under the financial pressure during that time of the bankruptcy and getting and your father getting everything back together? How do you, what do you recall from you know, the memories of your mother? So it's a very interesting question. I think that my mother um, is a very easygoing type of personality. Mm. Um, She has a sense of humor and she's also very creative. So she used her creativity to improvise. She always found ways Mm. to make change in the house without spending a lot of money. Um, Think that the creativity that I put into my writing, she put into creating a home that was always happy, always relaxed, always calm. I also think she didn't have high standards. Like she didn't need a lot of things. She found her fulfillment in supporting my father, who was a Talmud Chacham, was a Torah scholar. She found her fulfillment in raising her, her children. Um, I remember once on Purim, uh, we had just moved into a new house and there were a lot of guests on Purim, as there always were, were but um, especially on Purim. And th- at one point it became very noisy and very, um, you know, there was a lot of drunks here and it came out of hand a little bit and one of the guys fell and his foot knocked the wall and the wall was fresh and new, it was sheetrock and it just made a big hole in the wall, just like that. And everyone gasped. I remember this. I could see it vividly. Everyone was like staring at this big hole in this brand new house. And everyone looked at my mother. What is she going to say? Hmm. And she was like, it's okay. Nothing happened. I'll never forget that. Nobody's hurt. It's just a wall. (laughs) Yes. 
<laughs> I love exactly. that. You know what? It really speaks of that female creativity that we really have this. This is part of our, our, our God-given talent, right? That we can make so much out of a certain situation in, in a good way. And that, 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 that Bina Yasera, that uh, added measure of understanding of how to turn a situ- situations around uh, for good. It's, uh, and, and that sense of humor, as you said, is, <laughs> oh, can always, always helps. <laughs> it also shows the power of a woman, right? Exactly. And who is everyone looking at when this happened? Yes, is yes. Everyone looking at my mother. Yes. What is going to be her reaction? Mm-hmm. This because is the power that we women have. Yeah, we're the mother. We're the matriarch. Yeah. <laughs> because we set the tone. <laughs> However we react, that's going to set it off for everybody else. <laughs> Libby, you mentioned how your father not just rebuilt, but he came back even stronger. In fact, in a private conversation, we you t- mentioned that there was a point where he was his business was the success was to a point that he was thankfully and thank God employing a lot of people in your community. He was doing extremely well. Once your father became again a very wealthy man, did that impact in any way the ways you experience the interactions around money at home? Do you recall changes in the ways your parents handled money? And more importantly, I'm curious, how did growing up seeing your parents' financial debacle and then the tremendous success shape your own views and behaviors around money when it came to your life as a wife and a mother? You know, I don't recall money being an issue at all um, as growing up. I always had this sense that whatever I need, I'll get. My parents will get me anything I need. Hmm. It wasn't an issue. I don't, my parents didn't talk about money, not because they wanted to hide something. They're not that tight. They're mm-hmm. not the secret type, but it was a non-issue. I, I can't explain that. So the bankruptcy was just like a matter of fact thing and we move on with life type of thing. <laughs> Yeah, because it wasn't his only bankruptcy. There was always ups and downs, and that's that's part of life. Life comes with ups and downs, and but that doesn't take over everything. The meaning and the purpose of life was much greater than that. So it was a part of life. It was part of the puzzle and part of serving God in whatever situation you are. So I gather right. in your own life and in your own marriage and your own family, the ups and downs are something I just ride with calm and grace. Uh, not at all, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> really not. I, I, you know, my gra- my father's mother, which is another role model for me, my grandmother, um, she really lived life with her, all her feelings very strongly. My mother is a very calm person, easygoing person, but my grandmother, all her feelings were experienced to its full extent. Mm-hmm. So whether it was a, a wedding of one of her children, because my aunts are all young, I have an uncle that's younger than me, so I I was a girl growing up, attending weddings. My grandmother has 10 children, so there was always another wedding to go to. I remember her extreme, profound joy at each of the simcha, at each of the family celebration. I also remember her, the depth of the pain that she felt when something didn't go so well. Mm. So I think from her, I learned that it's okay to have the human experience, to be fully who you are in the moment. Mm. As long as we don't let go of that bitachon, that your father's example. Yes, yes. It's also the the resiliency. You know, my grandmother was very resilient coming back from the war and building up a a whole new life. Um, And also, like I said, when she experienced her sadness, she knew how to get back to her positive, optimistic, happy self. She knew how to do that. Hmm. Libby, the new book is out. You have your writing clients. You have your coaching clients. What's next for Libby Kissner? What What's the next goal that you see yourself tackling? Um, I have a new book that I'm working on. Oh, what's that about? Can you t- reveal? Give us a little inside scoop. Yes, it's a collection of stories, um, inspiring stories. There are moments of transformation. And um, and here's where I'm eating my own medicine because I am making myself resist writing when I am in an intense state. So in other words, I wait for the ability to write with flow and vitality. I wait, I add calmness as much as I can and only when I feel the flow, that's when I sit down and write. And believe me, it's hard because somebody's waiting for the book. I mean, there's a publisher who's waiting for the book but I know that I'll do my best work when I'll be the, in that state of flow and vitality. 
Hmm. I got to learn how to practice this, guys. <laughs> Is this going to be with a with a Jewish publisher or you're going back again to a, one of the bigger um, publishers for the general audience? This is a Jewish publisher. Nice, nice, nice. Okay. In fact, my secular book, the book that that got published with the secular publisher, also has a Jewish distributor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I have both there. But I think that um, the messages of my stories, they're mostly written, and we're talking about just the editing part. So they're mostly written, the publisher is interested, um, just going through my five C's with my own stuff, that is what is waiting for my flow and vitality. Well, we look forward to getting our hands on that book as well. Let us know. <laughs> Libby, let's wrap it up with some JLP fill in the blanks. This is the part of the show where I give you an open-ended sentence and you finish it with the first thing that comes to mind, okay? Yes. All right. I'm Libby Kisner, and I feel most spiritual when... Well, guess what? I feel most spiritual on Shabbos. Hmm. Yeah, it is a special time. I like Shabbos yeah. too. Yes. <laughs> My favorite mitzvah or one that I connect with the most is? I think it's unity. There you go. Just like it comes out in your in your book, in your latest book, <laughs> your Libby. My fondest, sweetest Jewish memory is? You know, my parents were always hosting guests. People from around the world found their way to our address, and that was a very sweet memory. Meeting all different kinds of people from all different uh, spheres of life was very eye-opening, very expansive, very interesting to get to know them. When I give tzedakah, I like to give to? Torah scholars. I love to support people who dedicate themselves to learning Torah. Very nice. And finally, I'm Libby Kistner, and today I'm most grateful for? I am most grateful for all the opportunities and challenges that life puts before us and to recognize that it's all customized to help shape us into the people we become and to fulfill our unique roles. Beautiful. Yeah, those challenges, eh? We have to be like, like your mother. We have to accept what comes and be in the moment. <laughs> not, not fight it. Yes. <laughs> Libby Kistner, thank you so much for this beautiful interview. Your latest book is available on Amazon and everywhere else. I was recently in New York. I saw it in Judaica stores over there. Um, it's again, dear Libby, will you answer my questions about friendship? And where else can we find you? Well, you can find me by reaching out to me at my email, Kistner, M-K-I-S-Z-N-E-R-M, like mother, mm-hmm. at gmail.com. I welcome your questions and comments. Beautiful. And if anybody is thinking of writing that next amazing book, well, maybe Libby will be the person to help you um, (laughs) make sure it flows out of you in the most uh, genuine and unique and beautiful way. Yes, I would love that. Thank you. Libby, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks to Libby for stopping by. Again, the book is Dear Libby, Will You Answer My Questions About Friendship? And you can find it on Amazon as well as many other bookstores and Judaica stores. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And speaking of answering questions, if you have a, if a question for me, remember that I'm taking questions for future Ask Yael episodes. You can always send those in via my website, jewishlatinprincess.com, or you can private message me on Instagram. But remember, you have to be following me first in order for me to be able to see your question, your message. I'm gearing up for the JLI retreat, or rather the National Jewish Retreat by JLI. That's really the official name. This August, you can check that out at jretreat.com. And you can come join me with your family from August 13th to the 18th for all six days, or at least part of the six days in Washington, D.C. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. I hope you have a wonderful week. Thanks for listening to Jewish Latin Princess Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes leave a rating, and share the podcast with the Jewish women you love. To access today's show notes, ask Yael a question, or suggest a uniquely talented Jewish woman to be featured on the show, visit jewishlatinprincess.com.